Chapter 9. The Model Police Officer It's important to emphasise that the police service is a large and massively complex organisation that does a lot of things that the public rarely see. The organisation requires a lot of different skills. Not everyone will be a brilliant thief-taker in the same way that not everyone will be suited to interviewing a child who's been sexually abused. However, this chapter is about what a great frontline officer looks like and how these skills form the foundations for all sorts of other specialist policing roles. Over the years, I've thought a lot about what makes a brilliant frontline police officer. and I'm going to try to distill those qualities and skills into a description. I dearly wish that British policing could somehow return to something like this model, because it worked. Do I think that that's ever going to happen? Sadly, no. However, in a spirit of optimism, here goes. A really effective police officer has a number of key attributes. Firstly, at their core, they're a decent human being, who genuinely likes other people, and who gets on well with almost everyone. They're usually a good conversationalist, enjoy a joke, and definitely don't take themselves too seriously. Secondly, they genuinely care about wanting to do the right thing in the best interests of the public and carry out their duties in a way that fearlessly tackles lawlessness wherever it comes from. Next, they genuinely don't care whether someone is black, white, straight, gay, male or female. All they care about is whether someone is honest, respectful and law-abiding, or whether they're the opposite of those things. A good police officer also has an excellent memory for names, faces, locations, vehicle registrations and phone numbers. In fact, pretty much any detail that is relevant to policing. There are a lot of police officers who would score pretty highly in most of these categories. However, it's the next bit that separates the competent police officers from the exceptional police officers, and this is harder to describe. The truly exceptional police officer is an expert at reading and understanding every nuance of someone's behaviour, body language, eye contact and verbal intonation. Over the years, they've dealt with and spoken to so many people trying to hide their guilt on the street, in police cars and in police interview rooms that they can spot them a mile away, in a busy street in amongst the general public. They can almost smell the guilt, fear and adrenaline in someone, and they can tell instantly if someone is lying to them. Furthermore, they have amazing powers of observation and will spot someone trying to hide an object under their clothing whilst driving past at 40 miles an hour. They'll spot the foot of someone sticking out from under a parked car where they're hiding a hundred yards away. They'll spot the metallic flash of someone discarding a knife into a hedge as they drive past them. They know what normal behaviour looks like and conversely they can identify someone whose behaviour just doesn't look right. I used to ask some of the great police officers that I worked with why they had stopped someone who hadn't looked out of place to me at all but then turned out to be wanted for murder in another country, or they had 10 stolen credit cards on them, or maybe a gun in their sock. Often, they simply couldn't put it into words, and they'd say something like, 
it just didn't look right. Others could explain it, and it was fascinating to listen to their mental processes. What had alerted them initially, why they'd asked the specific questions that they'd asked, and how they knew where to look for the drugs or the weapon or the stolen gear that was stashed nearby. Such officers will know exactly where to find the bag of discarded stolen property from a burglary by retracing the route taken by the person fleeing from the police. They just know where it's going to be. Why? Because they've learned to think like a criminal without acting like one. Put all of these attributes together and you have a police officer who is unstoppable. If someone is out in a public space committing a crime when that officer is on duty, they will spot them and deal with them in the way that they deserve to be dealt with. One of the key psychological skills that a good police officer needs to learn and then continually nurture is the ability to sense suspicious behaviour and calculate risk. This is all about tuning into the words, actions and behaviours of other people in order to understand what is really going on and why that person might be behaving in the way that they are. It's all about sharpening your innate human instincts and intuitions that were routinely used many thousands of years ago when human life was nasty, brutal and usually very short. These skills have been largely lost over time because people generally don't need them. When I was a civilian, I lived my life blissfully ignorant of the fact that there were many things going on in busy places that 90% of people just don't see. After three or four years in the police, I started to see them and it was like having a set of blinkers removed. As I grew in experience, I could see or rather sense more and more. In self-defense training, Police officers are taught that people behave in one of three ways, green, amber or red. However, this model can also be applied to lots of other areas of policing. The green state of mind is relaxed and tuned out of the environment. Amber is watchful and waiting, but still relaxed. At state red, the mind is on full alert and the body is creating massive amounts of adrenaline. Most members of the public are on green the majority of the time. They don't really notice what's going on around them, and when they become a victim of crime, or when something terrible happens in front of them, it comes as a horrible shock, and they go from green to red instantly. A police officer should be on amber most of the time when out in a public space, both on and off duty. Very little should come as a surprise to them, because they will have anticipated any problem and mentally prepared a strategy to deal with it. They will only be on green in the comfort of their own home or when lying on a beach on holiday. And even then, the very best officers will still spot thieves out looking for purses and mobile phones to steal when lying on a sun lounger. Another version of this highly observant mindset is taught on police driving courses. Most members of the public only look at a piece of road about 10 or 20 yards beyond the front of their car bonnet and they rarely use their mirrors. Good police drivers will be on amber constantly. They are continually raising their vision to look as far down the road as they can, using their peripheral vision to notice what's happening on either side of the vehicle 
as well as constantly flicking their eyes to their rear view and wing mirrors. This means that literally nothing should come as a surprise when they're travelling at high speed. They'll have seen every single potential hazard and they are continually recalibrating their speed and position in the road to take account of all of this. Now imagine doing this at the same time as giving a clear radio commentary, listening to a lot of information coming from others, thinking about where you're going, the best way to get there, and what awaits you when you arrive. It's a lot for the human brain to compute, but with experience and practice, a good police officer becomes highly expert at doing it. An experienced police officer can spot criminal behaviour and criminals instantly. Not because they're doing anything dramatic at that moment, but because they behave differently to law-abiding people. Like a good police officer, most repeat offenders will also have honed and sharpened their psychological and observational skills, but they use them in a totally different way. They might be looking for opportunities to commit crime, looking at potential victims and mentally weighing them up or looking out for police, CCTV cameras, or anything else that might put them at risk of capture. There were three main things that I was watching for when assessing and observing potential suspects that I started to hone when working in Clapham. Firstly, it's all about the eyes. Criminals are watchful and always looking around. If you look at them, they will spot it and make eye contact right back at you. Often they're trying to figure you out just as much as you're trying to figure them out. Sometimes they'll even smile or laugh and throw you the middle finger because they know that you've spotted them. A key surveillance officer skill is to never, ever make eye contact with someone you're following. All observations have to be done using your peripheral vision and you learn how to look without appearing to look. If you make eye contact with your target, it's game over. This can also work the other way. For example, a criminal might try to look too nonchalant when driving past a police car travelling in the other direction. This isn't natural either, because most law-abiding members of the public will notice a police car. They will usually flick their eyes towards it with an irrational sense of guilt. However, criminals will sometimes try so hard to look relaxed and innocent that they end up looking even more guilty than if they'd made eye contact. Secondly, you need to decode unusual body language. If someone is hiding something that they don't want you to know about, either on their person or in a vehicle, they will act in a way that will make you sense that something just isn't right. They might move in a way that's designed to throw you off the scent or distract you. They might flick their eyes to the location of the thing that they're worried about without realising. The most common diversion tactic is to start playing up and creating drama by shouting, waving their arms about, refusing to stay in one place and hoping that by doing that you'll back off and go away. A good police officer will do the exact opposite. But unfortunately, in a world of mobile phones, social media and a prevailing culture of grievance and entitlement, these tactics often now succeed and many police officers will just leave people alone because it's just not worth the hassle and the complaints. Today, 
A prolific young criminal can video a confrontational interaction he has had with the police using his phone and instantly upload it to YouTube or TikTok with the title, More Police Harassment in Camden. And in no time at all, other young people and naive members of the public will be up in arms about it. The police are on a hiding to nothing, because for legal reasons, they can't disclose the fact that this particular youth has 15 previous convictions and that there's current intelligence that he's regularly carrying knives. The third thing that I learned to look out for was for whether someone was about to start running away or start attacking me. In a situation where a suspect is on state red, they will be broadcasting many non-verbal cues that need to be read. Their whole body will start to tense up in preparation for the flight or the fight. For example, by looking in their eyes, you can tell if they're either closing down their field of vision and looking at you very intensely as the target for violence or looking around at their escape route options. As soon as I noticed this, or rather sensed it, I would get in very close if I thought they were just about to leg it, or I'd put some space between us if I thought they were about to swing a punch. As a rule, I never let people talk to me with their hands in their pockets. If I'd told someone to keep their hands out of their pockets, or I could see them in a car, and they refused, I would immediately consider that they either had a concealed weapon or something else that they were trying to hide or dispose of. I didn't care if they were unhappy about it. I didn't want to get stabbed or shot. Working in Clapham taught me all this. But later in my career, when working as a member of a surveillance team, it was interesting to dispassionately watch this behaviour unfolding in front of me. As a photographer hidden away, I had the luxury of zooming in on facial expressions and trying to lip-read what people were saying. In the same way that good police officers are always on amber, so are serious criminals and terrorists. You could see their body language changing as they moved up a gear into their preparatory stage of doing something that they knew could land them in prison for a very long time. This change of behaviour would get picked up instantly by a surveillance team and they'd be able to tell that something significant was just about to happen. As soon as you heard a team member saying something like, OK, all units, his eyes all around, now walking with purpose, stand by, stand by, we would all perk up and be on full alert. Armed robbers would typically conduct a recce of a location where they planned to commit an offence, often in the vicinity of a bank or a cash machine. Their body language would be fairly relaxed, but they'd be looking everywhere and taking everything in. However, when coming back to do the real job, they would look completely different. They'd be moving more purposefully, usually with a serious facial expression, and they would constantly be scanning for police. Terrorists would do the same. They would conduct hostile reconnaissance of a location, sometimes several times before an attack. For example, we would be watching a team of serious criminals preparing for a robbery and providing a second-by-second -second commentary of what was happening for the benefit of the supporting firearms team. Everything would be looking good, the Secura Corps van would pull up outside the bank and then suddenly the buddies would just walk away and split up because of one of them had seen something that had spooked him and the job had been aborted. 
This could be really frustrating, and we would never know why the robbers had changed their mind. Often it was a case that they'd seen what they thought was a police officer, or maybe they'd seen a car with three or four occupants on the other side of the street, and they thought they could be firearms officers. Such criminals were tuned into their instincts in exactly the same way that we were tuned into ours. It takes many years of working in tough policing areas as uniformed officers to develop this knowledge and situational awareness. The things that people say are obviously important too. A good police officer will often know when someone is lying to them because they will delay answering a very simple question to give themselves some thinking time. An ex-colleague from Clapham had a rule that he called the Who Me rule. If he asked someone their name and they came back with Who Me, it was usually a sure sign that that person was just about to offer up a false name. It might not be Who Me, but could also be some other utterance that served the same purpose of buying them a bit more thinking time. Generally speaking, there are only three types of people who don't tell the police their real name immediately upon being asked. Criminals, left-leaning types, and conspiracy theorists. The police aren't remotely interested in left-leaning types or conspiracy theorists, but they do need to be interested in criminals. If they're not, they're in the wrong job. Typically, when I stopped a car with multiple occupants or spoke to a couple of likely lads in the street with a colleague, I would split them up and we would individually weave the following questions into the conversation. What's your name and date of birth? Where do you live? What's your mate's name? Where have you just come from? Where are you off to now? We would then swap over and ask the same questions of his mate and see if the answers bore any relation to each other. If they'd been through the system plenty of times, they would often start playing up and creating drama if they had something to hide rather than just answering the questions. Or they'd start giving lots of who me type answers. I would also ask the date of birth at the start of the interaction and then ask it again a few minutes later. If it was made up, they rarely got it right the second time. Or they'd have to think about it, which told me everything I needed to know. Politely and professionally asking lots of questions and then remembering or noting down the answers given is really important. Frequently, out on the street, suspects would tie themselves up in all sorts of knots and forget what they'd said earlier. I used these skills in a more advanced way later in my career when interviewing serious criminals and sex offenders. Often people will say things that indicate guilt or knowledge of some aspect of an offence that they've committed and somehow it just leaks out of them, almost as if their brain just cannot keep it in. A good investigator will spot these comments and mentally bank them for later. Sometimes in between interviews, we would discuss these psychological leaks and ensure that they were explored deeper in the next interview. Often the interviewee hadn't even realised that they'd said that thing. But it would provide a real insight into what was going on in their head. We would bring it back up later by saying something like, When you were being booked into custody, you said X. 
which struck me as a slightly odd thing to say. Can you maybe just tell me what you meant by that? We also conducted intelligence interviews after someone had been charged or by going to interview them in prison after conviction. Frequently, these conversations would yield lots of valuable information that could be used to help us understand offenders better. These mental leaks happened in this setting too. For example, we might ask a sex offender, you've already told us that your primary sexual attraction is to girls under 10. Are you also attracted to boys of that age? If they answered, no, not really, that probably meant, yes, I'm very attracted to boys of that age, but you haven't caught me for any offences against boys, so I'm not going to talk about that. A lot of what I've described above about what I started to learn on the beaten Clapham is really quite basic stuff. However, towards the end of my service, I find it surprising and worrying how few police officers did any of this. I got the sense that they were afraid to talk to people and afraid to put anybody under even just a little bit of mental pressure. When I was a uniform sergeant and later an inspector, young officers used to say things like, what reason would I have to speak to that person? I would tell them in no uncertain terms that as a crown servant of Her Majesty the Queen, they had every right to speak to a member of the British public, and provided that they behaved professionally, they had nothing whatsoever to fear. Unfortunately, quite a lot of police officers never really learn these skills because they're probably in the wrong job or they're working somewhere too quiet. No matter how good you could be at these techniques, you would never learn them in a sleepy part of the country. You need to be somewhere with a bit of life and grit. Some police officers are exceptionally good at it and they're the ones who will routinely generate their own arrests of quality criminals just by seeing something that didn't look right and by trusting their instincts. Many years ago, most traffic officers only dealt with traffic offences, vehicle defects, accidents and speeding. Occasionally, us local officers would find ourselves posted to assist them with an initiative to tackle dangerous vehicles or some other traffic-related issue. The local officers from places like Clapham would get really frustrated because the traffic officers just didn't seem to see that many of the people that they were stopping for trivial issues, such as displaying an out-of-date tax disc, were clearly criminals who probably had drugs, guns or God knows what else in their car. They would issue them with a ticket, having been given almost certainly a false name by the driver, and then send them on their way, never to be seen again. It used to drive us nuts. Today, this is no longer the case, and traffic officers are one of the very few small groups of police officers who have the time, inclination and ability to proactively get out there and disrupt criminals. Everyone else is too busy handling routine calls for service, sorting out trivial issues or dealing with time wasters. Some of the most ineffectual operational police officers that I worked with over the years were a bit hopeless at proactive policing. They weren't aware of what was going on around them and they were too trusting and fell for obvious lies. They tended to over-intellectualise problems, failed to understand things that were basic common sense to most cops 
and they couldn't spot the signs of impending violence. They were a liability to themselves, and more importantly, they were a liability to their colleagues. Frustratingly, quite a lot of them ended up in very senior ranks and became a barrier to our ability to fight crime. I always find the dynamic between good police officers and criminals in the street fascinating. And this also applied off-duty. I would regularly spot someone who was up to no good when I was off-duty. We would make eye contact and they would know that I was a police officer. I knew what they were up to and they knew that I knew. It's very hard to describe the sense that someone is up to no good, particularly when giving evidence in court. A court focuses solely on evidence, facts and verifiable events. More than once, I had barristers berate me in court when I stated that I had initially stopped and spoken to their client because their behaviour had raised my suspicions. In reality, most barristers know exactly what you mean when you say this because they deal with criminals all the time and they know perfectly well what most of their clients are like. However, it's all part of the game to feign shock and surprise at the actions of the nasty police officer who's picked on their client for no good reason. It's all about persuading the more gullible members of a jury to acquit their client. There are still police officers in every force who are great at proactively catching criminals. And it's encouraging to see evidence of that in some of the fly-on-the-wall TV shows. But back in the 1980s and 90s, there were lots, hundreds of them. But then the bureaucracy screwed everything up and now everyone's too busy dealing with crap to catch real criminals. If policing does somehow rediscover some of its true spirit, it's incredibly important to emphasise that good policing skills don't appear overnight. It takes many years of experience and passing on that experience to younger officers to create a place like Clapham in the 1990s. Even if we decided tomorrow to try to recreate this dynamic, empowered, can-do mindset, it would probably take almost as long to recreate it as pointless bureaucracy and clueless politicians took to destroy it. In those days, the organisation generally discouraged reporting a crime unless the issue that you were sent to was serious enough. Generally speaking, proper crimes would get reported and investigated. If you got badly assaulted or had your car stolen or broken into or had your house burgled, it would be treated seriously and you'd get a fairly consistent standard of investigation. However, if your complaint was deemed to be frivolous or trivial, you'd be given words of advice and the matter would go no further. For example, if we attended a complaint of two neighbours arguing the toss over a damaged garden fence and this resulted in a bit of pushing and shoving, we would have advised both individuals to wind their necks in and stop behaving like children. Today, we would end up with two crime reports for common assault, another crime report for criminal damage and a full investigation. This would probably take several days and would almost certainly result in no further action, i.e. a complete waste of everyone's time and effort. Arguably, this overzealous approach which is mandated by the Home Office, worsens and prolongs the conflict between the neighbours 
rather than just nipping it in the bud. In the 1990s, if an inexperienced officer returned to the police station and tried to submit a crime report for trivial matters, commonly referred to at that time as a load of bollocks or LOB, they would be told in no uncertain terms by a sergeant not to do such a thing again, and the report would be ripped up and thrown in the bin. The basic attitude was that we should always be focused on crime, and that we should be out and about, patrolling the streets and sniffing out criminality day and night. We obviously couldn't do that if everyone was tied up back at the station filling out forms. This culture created a real zest for policing, and we all couldn't wait to get to work to get stuck in. It also generated healthy competition between the teams within the division. If you're out in the community committing crime, there was a very strong chance that you'd be caught. Sadly, that is very much not the case today. The major downside of this culture, however, was that it gave a license to lazy or unprofessional officers to ignore lots of quite serious incidents because they couldn't be bothered dealing with them properly or because a victim had been rude to them. It also created the risk that a member of the public could come to very serious harm at a later date because the police hadn't done their job properly or failed to help them out when it should have been obvious that they were at risk. Therefore, a very inconsistent level of service was created. However, this did not become a problem for the force because at that time no one was interested in modern notions of customer service or performance metrics and data quality. In the early 1990s, if someone had asked a police constable or sergeant how the police performance was at Clapham or elsewhere, they probably would have assumed that they were asking about the top speed of the cars. During this time, the dispatch of officers to incidents was carried out by staff who worked from a control room in Clapham Police Station, and these people were members of our team. Therefore, it was common practice for these staff to screen and paraphrase what was being said by an officer out on the ground and turn it into something on an electronic log that would be acceptable in an audit. This meant that what got recorded on the log often bore very little relation to the reality of what had actually happened. I'm not talking about blatantly covering up bad behaviour on the part of officers, because I never saw that happen. No one in that position was willing to risk losing their job or potentially going to prison to cover up something carried out by someone else. It was more about ensuring that dealing with time wasters did not turn into us spending our whole time doing pointless paperwork. I'll give you another example. You're sent to a disturbance outside a local convenience store and on arrival you find two blokes who are both worse for wear having clearly had a bit of a drunken scuffle. Both are effing and jeffing at each other, and one of them has a bloody nose. So you and your colleague separate them and pretend to be interested in what they're telling you and why they were having a scrap. Both make allegations against the other, and it's clear that if you do nothing, it'll kick off again. So you tell the less pissed one to clear off and put the more pissed one in the back of the car. You then drive him home and let him out of the car, telling him that if you get called back again, he'd be getting nicked. In this scenario, you have at least three criminal offences that have been committed. Drunk and disorderly, assault causing actual bodily harm, and a fray. If you arrested both men, 
two officers would be taken off the street for at least four or five hours. Nowadays, those same officers would be off the street for a further day to attend court, and if adjourned at court, more than one day. The final outcome would be of little interest to anyone, and would probably result in a bind-over to keep the peace, which is basically an undertaking to the court not to do it again, or a trivial fine that neither protagonist would ever pay. It would be cheaper for the British taxpayer to take them both out for dinner at the Savoy Hotel rather than the ridiculous rigmarole now expected by the Home Office. The most sensible and cost-effective approach would be to separate both parties and get back out onto the streets to deal with real criminals. In Clapham, we would have dealt with that incident from start to end in about 20 minutes, rather than three days. The assessment given to the staff in the control room would have been along the lines of two pissheads having a punch-up, we told one of them to foxtrot Oscar and we took the other one home. The electronic log would probably have read Police attended, no offences disclosed, both parties suitably advised, no further cause for police action. Sorted. In the 1990s, there were no camera phones to shove in cops' faces every time they spoke to someone and barely any CCTV cameras. Therefore, if someone wanted to make a complaint about poor service, these were usually squared up quickly by the sergeant or inspector, unless the complainant was really serious.